You guys enjoying our service today? It's always great to see people follow the Lord in baptism once they've made this commitment to put their faith in Christ and Christ alone, and then they follow with obedience. And then one of the things is God says, hey, what's happened to you is on the inside. It's your heart. It's faith. It's trust in Christ. But Jesus says we express that to others in public through believer's baptism, that we are buried with Christ and raised to new life. And so it's great to see people following through with what Jesus said. And we're glad you're here. We're actually finishing up a series this Sunday. It's called Christian Atheist. And that's just a term that, that we've, we sort of use for somebody who says they're a Christian, but yet in certain areas of their life, they live like an atheist. They believe in God, but they just don't believe God in everything that God tells us about living out our lives. And we actually covered fear as one of those things, and uh, forgiveness, and also obedience. And today, we're dealing with the last topic, and the last topic is anger. We're dealing with anger. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of anger in our world today, in our country today. I mean, we see that. It, we see it in politics. We see it uh, in sports. We see it just all over our culture where people are mad. People just are boiling mad. And then they're outraged at other people. And if they can't figure out who to be mad at, then they're mad at God because they, they, you know, they don't know. They're just mad. And so that's what we want to address because Scripture addresses it. And so we're going to deal with that today. And uh, so we're going to, and, and before I get there, I know some of you are thinking, uh, well, I don't really have a problem with this. Hey, I got a pass. Uh, I'm good to go. And, you know, I don't really get angry. Well, well what about then? Or the, well, oh, well, well I, oh, I was just frustrated then. Oh, that time? Well, I was just exasperated. Well, that time? Oh, I just didn't understand, you know. Or, or I was tired. Or we always have these issues to excuse our, our own anger. But that's, that's anger. It's the same thing, and that's why we need to deal with it. Let's dive into the Bible to see what's true about anger. And the first thing we want to do is we'll look and see what Jesus says about anger. And in order to do that, we're going to look back at his most famous sermon. We actually did this last Sunday as well. His most famous sermon early in his ministry, uh, he's got a bunch of people following him. He's up by the Sea of Galilee. He goes on the, uh, the eastern shore of that and there is like a, some rolling hills, and he's up there, and it creates kind of a natural amphitheater, and he's got thousands of people, and he starts his first sermon, and the first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. That sounds kind of weird to us, but it really, it sets the tone for everything. Poor in spirit means bankrupt, as far as us being right before God. It means we have nothing. We are poor. We are bankrupt. We have nothing to offer a holy and righteous God to accept us into his presence. We have this humility that we know, hey, the only way that we can be made right with God, that we can't do it, only God can. That's poor in spirit. And he starts out that way, and then... He, he starts talking about the law. 
when he talks about the law, he's going to say some things about the different points of the law. For example, the Ten Commandments. And he's going to put a bit of a twist on it, it'll sound like. And he basically, before he gets there, he says, hey, I'm not, I haven't come to replace the law. I've come to fulfill the law. So don't think that I'm saying that the law is not right or anything like that. No, I'm giving you the full explanation of the law. And then he starts talking about the law and he says, hey, you heard, don't do this external action, but I'm telling you, if you're even thinking about it in your heart, that you're already guilty before God. And it's in that section that he deals with anger as one of his topics. So I'm going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And that's kind of an unusual translation. Some, some Bibles have that a little different. Fiery hell or hell is Greek word Gehenna, and what that word is named after, the Hinnon Valley that is just south of Jerusalem. It's really on the, the southern border of the town of Jerusalem. And what had happened there is there was a time in Israel's past where it was after they had kings and the kings started becoming corrupt and the people kept turning away from God. And it was so bad that Jewish people turned away from God and started following a false god, a Canaanite god named Molech. And then as part of worshiping Molech, they went to the Valley of Hinnon and they actually sacrificed their children to the fire. And so that was kind of common in pagan religions. And so that was, sin was so bad that God said, hey, I'm gonna have... I'm going to have a nation come in and wipe you out, which is exactly what happened. Babylon, and he said, and, it's going to, and you're going to be in exile for 70 years. The nation of Babylon came in. They wiped out Israel. They actually destroyed the temple, which was rebuilt later. But they destroyed that, and uh, the people went into exile. And, and then when they came back, there was this, after 70 years in exile, they realized this valley is still there. So they made the valley a trash heap and put all the refuse, rotting corpses, and all that, and it was just always burning, all the, always smoldering, trash, refuge, dung, animal carcasses, that was all there. And they did that to defile it so nobody would ever worship the false god of Molech again by sacrificing their children there. It was kind of an ever-present reminder, and that's the way it was when Jesus was there in the first century. And what Jesus is telling us is that that anger comes out of our own heart. And it's usually rooted in ego or pride, but anger that's in our heart often spills out of our mouth. And, and so Jesus is mentioning this, that some who express anger, they do it with kind of aggressive words, you know, name calling. And he mentions a couple of those 
phrases. Raka, meaning empty-headed or, or good for nothing. Um, it's a term showing contempt. Or you fool. Fool is sort, sort of borrowed from the Old Testament, and that's somebody who divorces the consequences from actions. They think, well, I'm going to do these actions and not have the consequences, and, and that's not very smart. And so Jesus is telling us that contempt starts in the heart. And so he's using this issue of murder to explain that. And of all the Ten Commandments, I gotta tell you, number six, do not murder, that's the easiest commandment to follow, right? Right? I, maybe it's kind of a rough crowd here. I, you know, I don't know who I'm dealing with, but maybe some of you are like, no, I just murdered yesterday, you know. That was a real problem. I'm still working on Yeah, murder is the one commandment that we usually have a grip on. Not, not everybody, but, but a lot of us. We've got that one down. So Jesus takes us the easiest one for us to follow and says, you're even messing that up because when, you, when you're angry with somebody, it's like you want them dead. You just don't want to go through the inconvenience of murdering them. You want them dead, but you don't have the guts to kill them, but you just wish they would go away. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, the root of murder is actually anger. And so some express that with words, name calling, whatever. Some people express anger with words, although we have to realize, especially in our culture, anger shows up in other ways. Some people express anger and they are passive with words. And you know what I'm talking about. Have you ever received from somebody the silent treatment, right? That's where people, you know, they, they, don't, they don't talk at all. It's the opposite of name calling. They just, they close up. And they do that actually to punish you. I know some of you are thinking, hey, well, if I got the silent treatment, maybe that wouldn't be so bad. But they're actually doing that to punish you, to make you pay, you know, for some wrong that you've did. And so some people, they express anger with words. Some do it without words. They do it passively with words, but they still do it. And then others do it passive-aggressive. You know, that's the, that's the third way. You know what I mean there? That's where you sort of act like you're going along with the program or you're even acting like you're complimenting somebody, you know, but actually it's the other way. We see this at work all the time in our workplaces, sometimes even in our families. That's expressing anger in an indirect way. We still have the anger, we just express it indirectly. You indirectly express anger instead of openly, and it happens, it happens a lot. For example, you have the, the backhanded compliments, right? These are like, they sound like compliments, but it's actually a criticism wrapped in a compliment. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Backhanded, back, well, let me explain it to you. It's, it's, it's saying things like this. Hey, you don't have to be smart. You're cute. Or you're not as dumb as you look. Okay, well, thanks. You know, or, or even worse, you're not as dumb as you look. How could you be? You know, this, these, are not, these are not compliments. You know, 
These are criticisms that we're, we're trying to make them, shape them to sound okay. But that's not passive aggressive, you know. That's when at work you'll come across a person who's stubborn and, and you're trying to communicate and they'll punish you with like endless conversations that just go in circles and circles and circles and always avoid the main point. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. It drives you kind of crazy. You know, just stubbornness. Or somebody, this is what our kids do sometimes. At work, you know, they'll... They'll pretend not to understand something so you won't give them the task. Oh, you need me to do this? I'm not sure I understand that because right, you don't want to do it. So could you explain that to me one more? You know, we're waiting for the, uh, don't worry, I'll, I'll do it, you know? And our kids do that sometimes. Like, what do you want me to do, mom? Really? How, how do you want me to do? Sometimes they're just playing that up, right? It's passive aggressive, you know? They're just trying to get out of it. Or some people, they'll do a bad job just so they won't be asked to do it again. They'll intentionally do a bad job. It's weird because I see people looking at each other as I mention these things. I don't know, you know what's going on. Or you know, at work sometimes in an organization, people will, will tr they'll intentionally freeze some people out of information. Oh, I, I've received this information. You know, the whole staff or the organization needs to know that, but I'm gonna pick my favorites and I'm gonna openly communicate to them, but then the people I don't like so well, they'll be the last to know and that's gonna make them not look so smart. It's just passive aggressive. So, but expressing anger, no matter how you do it, whether it's passive aggressive or passive verbally or aggressive verbally with our words, it all tears at relationships, all of it. So if anger, and here's what Jesus has said, just the anger in our hearts makes us guilty before God. Well, I guess we need to stop and ask this question. If anger makes us guilty, then is there ever a time when anger is okay? And actually there is, and so we wanna break that down. Some anger is not sin. Because Jesus actually displayed, in a very limited way, anger. We, we call it righteous indignation. And so that kind of, it's righteous anger over injustice. And I got to tell you, just using that term in my notes, injustice, I'm like, boy, I'm going to say this word, injustice. And then everybody, it's, it's become a loaded word in our culture today, uh, injustice, everybody says injustice. But justice, injustice is just lack of justice, lack of fairness, lack of impartiality. And justice is a major theme in scripture. For example, back in the law, in Leviticus 19.15, it says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. And then it further goes on. You shall not be partial. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Do you hear what he's saying? When somebody does something wrong, you judge the wrong. It doesn't matter if they're a poor person, you don't cut them slack, and if they're a rich person, you don't give them special favor. If you do the crime, you do the time, you know, is kind of a deal. But we, but we have a, a segment of our society trying to really get away from that. And I got to tell you, God tells us, judge everyone equally, no matter who they are. But today, what we do is we put a bunch of adjectives in front of justice. And every time we do that, we're twisting justice into injustice. 
It's really strange when we talk about social justice, economic justice, environmental justice, all this is, we put this adjective in front of justice and what we're saying is it's not going to be equal and it's not going to be fair and it's not going to be impartial. We add the adjective and it destroys the justice even though we tag it on to justice. It's kind of crazy if you think about it. Jesus displayed righteous anger over injustice. And he did that. He actually did that a couple of times in the temple. One at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end. I want to look at the one at the end. That's in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 12. Here's what happened. And Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves and said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. This is not the way most people picture Jesus, right? Goes into a crowded temple area, because this is Passover time, and during the last week of his ministry, it's jam-packed with these people that have come to celebrate Passover, Jewish people from all over the world or that part of the world. And he goes in there and he starts flipping tables over. And people are like, whoa, you know, what is going on? And he's doing this in the temple. I, actually, last service, I did a whole background on the temple. Not gonna do that to save time. But here's what the temple looked like in Jesus's day. Um, you have this huge temple and then the temple proper is the tall building. That's just two rooms, the temple and the Holy of Holies. And then outside of that, you have this little court of the priests and that's where they did the sacrifices. You can't even really see that. And then outside of that is the court of Israel or the court of men. And then outside of that is the court of women. That's sort of on the, the lower part of that center thing. That's the court of women. All, just anybody Jewish could be in there. But then outside of that court, the largest court is the court of the Gentiles. That's the whole area surrounding this. This is like, besides the temple, uh, this is like a 35-acre plot of ground, more land than we have here as a church, about 15 or so. And so 35 acres, and most of it is the court of the Gentiles. And that's where all this stuff is happening. People have flooded into Jerusalem, and it's kind of under the pretense of doing something useful. In order for them to make the sacrifice that they were supposed to make, remember, God had put in the law that because we are sinful people and God is holy, we have to recognize that. And God says, you know, the problem with us is we don't know how serious our sin is. And to remind us how serious our sin is, the Jewish people had to come and bring an innocent, unblemished animal, like a little lamb, and then the lamb was killed as a sacrifice, sort of in payment for our sins. It was this vivid reminder that we've sinned against God, and, and we can't fix it, and so this sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, was a temporary covering and God says one day there's gonna be a perfect sacrifice and you won't be doing this anymore. And so people were coming, well, it was easier for people to travel if they had to travel a long ways, not to bring their animals to buy an animal in Jerusalem. 
And so they were doing that. They were also the, the, the temple, that money that they give, their offering, was supposed to be done in shekels, but at that time, shekels weren't the normal uh, use of the realm. And so they needed to exchange their money. Anybody exchange money? They were exchanging money. Anybody exchange money? Work with me here. All right, yeah. When they exchanged money, what was happening in the temple is that they were being charged excessive exchange rates. And so the people were being taken advantage of. The, the animals were going for more than they should go. When they exchanged their money, they, they, were, they were kind of paying exchange rates that were higher than normal. They should have been doing that. So all that's happening on the temple grounds in this huge area called the court of the Gentiles. Jesus enters into that during Passover week. He starts flipping tables and here's what's going on. Jesus is reacting to an injustice. It's an injustice to the Jewish people they are being taken advantage of. They are being exploited by the religious leaders because they're charging these excessive rates and the temple leaders are getting a cut of that and they're getting excessive rates for the exchange, excessive rates for the animals. They're getting a cut and Jesus said, no, you're exploiting people, that's wrong. He interrupts that. He flips the tables, he drives them out. But it wasn't just that. This whole area was the court of the Gentiles and the reason that it even existed, the court of the Gentiles, was so the Jewish people who received the law and the word of God and they knew all about God, this was the place that they were supposed to teach non-Jewish people like almost everybody here. You're either Gentile or Jewish. You know, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. People like us who wanted to come and learn about God, this huge space all around the temple was for us. And that was the place where the Jewish people would teach us about God and we could focus on God and that we could pray to God. And so that's what, that was the purpose. But that's not happening either. It's become a bazaar. It's become a marketplace. It's just become a mess. And so Jesus is reacting to the injustice of exploiting the Jewish people and ignoring the Gentile people. He's dealing with it all. And so righteous anger is the appropriate response to exploitation. Actually, righteous anger can be a motivation for good. Today, we call it Patriot's Day, 9-11, honoring 21 years ago the people who were killed in the terrorist attacks on our soil. If you remember, a lot of you watch this. I mean, a plane flew into one of the, the two towers in New York City, and while we were hearing the news and maybe tuning in on TV and watching that tower burn, while we were doing that, another plane come in and hit the other tower. And then while that was happening, another plane was hijacked and flown in to the Pentagon, and a fourth plane was hijacked. But by then, the people, the Americans on the plane knew what was happening, and they didn't let that happen, and that went down. But when that happened and those towers collapsed and thousands of American civilians died, there was a righteous anger in our country. You cannot terrorize us. You cannot come in and slaughter our civilians without a response. And so people reacted with righteous anger. They went out and they signed up to join the military or do whatever they could 
to strike back to prevent that from happening again because terrorism has always terrorized the civilian population so they will cow down and do what you want them to do. We say, no, we want our freedom. We're not going to do that. And so there's a righteous anger. But I got to tell you, righteous anger is almost never the anger that we have in our personal lives. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And, and when it comes to righteous anger, we don't have the clarity or the control or the character to consistently display righteous wrath over wrongs to others because that's what that, that is. It's righteous wrath over wrongs done to others. So, but there's also a righteous wrath over sin in general. God's anger is holy and righteous, and it's rooted in love, just like Jesus. He's angry about what's going on in the temple, but it's all rooted in love, his love for the Jewish people and his love for the non-Jewish people. And we have to you know, understand that. When we see all kinds of terrible abuses in the world, and I don't mean a slight or somebody thinks that somebody's done something against them or they perceive. I'm talking where people are being massacred around the world, like what's happening today. We then want a God of justice and even wrath because we realize sins against humanity, sins against children, brutalization to children, that needs to be punished. We get that. And as a matter of fact, it's because of situations like that, that's why we have orphanages. We help or orphans in Africa. We have two orphanages in Thailand. The, and the reason we do that is because children were being exploited in horrific ways. And when children were orphaned or partially orphaned in that culture, it's kind of complicated, you know, those kids had no place to live and, and that's in a country where relationships between adults and kids aren't really uh, legally monitored like, like we would today. And kids were horrifically exploited. So we built an orphanage, took in some of those kids. These are Northern Hill Tribe kids that are not considered citizens of Thailand, even though they lived there, born there, lived there all their life. And then we realized we had enough land to build another one, and we did that, and you guys know the story. Oh, by the way, talking about orphanage, remember one of our students, we took them as a young child and he grew up and he graduated and he started college and he, had a, he was on a scooter going to college and he was in a big accident and I asked you guys to pray. Do you remember that? His name was Weira. Here's one of his, his pictures. I asked uh, one of the staff members to send me a picture that I just got, the, I asked yesterday, she just sent it to me today. Their days and nights are flipped and here he is. So thank you for your prayers. He's making a great recovery. Five surgeries, you know, just amazing. So uh, God, God's good. So thank you very much. But here's the deal. God is perfectly just, and all sin, all wrongs will be punished. And, and when we look around at the world, we say, good. But then we realize, oh, that's our wrongs too. And then we don't, then all of a sudden, a God of justice doesn't sound so great to us. 
You see, anger can be righteous. But it's not righteous if we're angry about sins against us. Think about Jesus. The court of the Gentiles is being abused. The people are being taken advantage of. You know, the, the Jews are not caring about the non-Jews, you know, and all this is happening. He gets angry. But when a group of soldiers are actually nailing his body to hunks of wood, he prays for them. No anger. That's the difference between anger and righteous anger. And so, if anger is so serious, you know, that, that to be guilty of that is to be punished, then the question is, so how do we deal with our anger? How do we deal with it? Well, with our anger with other people, our anger toward others, we need to remember some stuff. And one is just kind of a weird way to look at it, is we need to remember that anger is a good indicator that something's going on inside of us. So we're mad. Somebody's done something that's made us mad. Right there, we need to stop and think, what's going inside of me? What's going on in me, in my heart, that makes me so mad? You know, what's happening? Because actually, nobody has the ability to make you mad. That's your heart. It's, it's kind of like a water bottle. You know, nobody can make the, what's inside. But when something happens, we get all agitated on the inside, and, and all of a sudden, things start spilling out. Yeah, but that's, so it's a good indicator. We need to stop and reflect, hey, what's going on in my heart? That's the first thing. Good indicator, something's wrong. But also, secondly, how to deal with it, we want to avoid anger by keeping short accounts. And that shows up in another place in Scripture. It's actually in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. Here, Paul's writing a church, and he's saying, Here, here's how to deal with this. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. And we're like, okay, that, how do you do that? He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So a couple of weird phrases there. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What he's saying there is keep short accounts. If you're getting angry because somebody's doing something to you, you don't just ignore it and let it build up and build up and build up. He's saying during that very day, you should go to that person and deal with it. Now, please hear what I'm saying. There's a lot of stuff that people do and we don't like it and we should just let it go. Probably most things that might make us angry, we should just let it go. We should not let it stir us up on the inside. But if we cannot do that, if somebody's doing something and for whatever reason we're incapable of letting it go, well then what we need to do is go to that person and try to make that talk to them about it, to try to fix that issue. That's called keeping short accounts. And so don't build up 20 of these over five months or five years or five decades and then explode no, the day that it's happening, if you're realizing, oh, I can't let this go, go have the conversation. Say, hey, I don't know what you meant by that, but here's what I'm thinking, you know, and just work it out right there. And then the other weird phrase there was don't give the devil an opportunity or some versions say don't give the devil a foothold. And that just means that word foothold or opportunity, it's just don't give the devil a place or room in your life. As a matter of fact, 
before the first service, before I walked out here, I went through a room back here and it was where all the guys in the band were hanging out. It's like where all the cool guys were. And they were all hanging out in a room. And I'm just passing through one door to the other door, walking through there. And they're having this lively conversation. And I hear Neil, our drummer, and he's talking about something that happened when he was a kid. And he's talking about his brothers. And he says, yeah, and my brother, and the, I thumped him. In the ch-, you know, and they're just having this big old conversation. Well, think about this. How many of you have had like a fight with your siblings, like something's gone, you know, they've thumped you or whatever. And especially if you're the big brother, then you start chasing them through the house. Who, who's with me on this? And then you can admit it. Come on. And so you're chasing them through the house. And of course, what are they doing? They're trying to run and get into a bathroom or their bedroom where they can get in, shut the door and lock it before you can get in. Who's with me? Who's been either the one running or the one chasing? Okay. You're with me. But then what happens? You're chasing them. Of course, I was the big brother for my brothers. And then as they shut the door, if you could shove your foot in there, the door doesn't close all the way. They can't lock it. And if you're the bigger one, I mean, at that point, it's over, right? Because you're bigger than them. So now it's the tug of war over the door. And eventually, you're going in. Do you hear what I'm saying? Not that I've ever done that. But some of you have. You're going in. That's what he's talking about. Keep your accounts short. Otherwise, you're letting bad stuff, a foothold, a place, an opportunity to worm into your life that you can't that easily get out. That's what he's telling us. Don't let that happen. Not keeping our accounts short, which means you're letting resentment build up over time. It's an opportunity, it, create, it creates room, place, opportunity for anger to grow in our hearts and bitterness. He's saying, don't do that. Keep the account short. We see this probably the most in marriages, right? I mean, you meet somebody, you think they're great, you, know, you decide to get married, the wedding day's fantastic, everything's good. You're, you're having a blast, you go on your honeymoon, everything's great, and you settle down into the routine of life, and, you know, and then little things start happening. I don't know, the guy, the guy you know, he eats lunch or whatever and, and grabs his plate and his glass, and then he sets it over on the counter. And his wife's going, what's he expecting me to pick that up? Why didn't that go in the dishwasher? You know, and, and, then, and then she'd think, oh, you know, he's probably busy, I'll get it, you know. Or, or the guy comes home, right, and he's, he's had a hard day, and he's just, he just wants to veg out. He just wants to sort of what we call decompress. So he plops down in front of the TV, he turns on the game or whatever, and then she comes, hey, it's, she's been waiting all time. It, it's couch time for us to talk and reconnect. And, and you start doing that, and the guy's kind of distracted, and, and, here, and the guy's thinking, you know, she's thinking, well, why can't I get this guy's attention? What's so important about this? And the guy's thinking, doesn't she understand? I don't really want to talk right now. Not, <laughs> some of you are laughing at me. Yeah, no elbows. So then stuff like that happens, right? But if you don't, and what you should do is let it go. Oh, let it go, let it go. But if you're incapable of letting it go, you need to address it. Hey, you know what's going on? I, I really didn't focus on you like I should. I'm sorry. You know, 
And not to minimize our apologies, but just like sometimes I come on, I'm just kind of in this frame of mind to decompress. And then that keeps anger and resentment from building. But if you don't do that, then day after day, it starts building and building and building. And then five years later, you're in a counselor's office going, he always does this. And she said, she always does this. Because you didn't keep short accounts. You just let it build and build and the resentment grew and grew and it turned into anger. And then it starts spilling out in your relationship. It's messed up. We try to overlook. I mean, the best thing's overlook. But if you can't, you have to deal with it. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion, a man's discretion, and this is man in the generic, a, a person's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. That's what we should be trying to do. But if you can't, keep the account short, deal with it, because... Sometimes this is read at weddings all the time. 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You, you can't build that up. Okay, so what else? Keep short accounts. We need to remember words matter. I mean, words hurt people. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Angry words damage. And, and here's the basics. Maturity is controlling our emotions. What makes us different than a two-year-old is we've, learned to, we've matured. We've learned to control our emotions, and with that comes controlling our words. All right? But he, so that's how some strategies from the Scripture that we can use to deal with our anger. But our anger is not our biggest problem. Our anger at other people and how to deal with that, that's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is God's righteous anger toward us because he's created us, he's given us life, he's given us freedom, and we've used that freedom to do things he says are wrong, to hurt other people. And God is in righteous anger toward our sin, and that's us. And not only this, if he caught it, what Jesus said at the end of that first passage I read, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. To go to hell, he's saying. You see, Jesus is saying that all of our sin, including the anger in our heart that we don't even display, all of our sin, brings God's righteous wrath on us. And that sin our sin, all of our sin, my sin, it makes us guilty enough to go to hell for eternity. That's the just and right and impartial penalty, the correct penalty for all of our sin. But God loves us. And so here's God's message to us in Romans 5, beginning of verse 8. So we're guilty, and in light of that, we're all guilty before God, it says this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So what's he saying? He's saying that we all deserve God. You see, God is not pulling any punches. Here's what we do. We invent our own God in our mind that's okay with the jacked up things we do. And God's saying sin is sin. And he's telling us we've all done it. And being good doesn't take that away because we're supposed to be good. He created us to be good. And so what hope? Well, when we're poor in spirit, we understand that and we realize there's nothing I can do to fix my relationship with God. There's nothing I can accomplish. There's no action I can take. There's no good deed that I can do that'll be like, oh, God says, oh, you're in. Because nothing erases my sin. And just like the Old Testament Israelites were bringing in that sacrifice to remind them of the seriousness, God kept saying, one day there's going to be a perfect sacrifice. And the one day came when Jesus died on the cross and he bled to pay for our sins. He died to pay for our sins. But the way we get that, see, God loves all of us. And God knows your sins better than you do. And God knows everything about you. And God loves you, and Christ died for you. You see, while God is a God of wrath over sin, he's also a God of love, and he pays his own demand for penalty. He pays God's righteous wrath in his own death. And he offers that to us, everybody. All we have to do is humble ourselves by admitting our sin, And then turning to God in faith, or maybe a better way to say that today is turning to God, trusting in Christ, that's trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone and what he did on the cross. That if we put our faith, our trust in Jesus with a desire to follow him, even though we mess that up, if we put our trust in Jesus, that's the day that we become a believer because all of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for by Jesus. All of our sins, past, present, and future. But we only know we're serious about that when we place our faith in in Christ with a desire to want to follow him. But none of us gets that perfectly right. Put your faith in Jesus. That's the most important message that you will ever hear. And you can do that today if you're not sure. Just by finding some time today in your room on the drive home, take a walk and say, God, I admit that I've sinned. And I'm humbling myself before you. And God, I'm asking you for forgiveness. And I know that's possible because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I'm based on him and him alone. I'm asking for forgiveness. Come into my life and help me follow you. That's what it means to be a Christian. Next step is someday be baptized. But baptism is not it. It's the faith that saves you. Let's stand for prayer. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. And God, we recognize who you are and who we are. And Lord, we ask you to make us who you want us to be. And Father, if there's any here that haven't made that decision yet, They're just like we used to be. 
And we pray that you would draw them to you, that you'd help them to open their heart to you because you know them better than anybody. And Lord, that they would understand your love for them that they would come to you in faith, asking for forgiveness based on Jesus alone. Help them to do that, Lord. Thanks for loving us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.